Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. This is Alex Moroner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ingrid Timbo. In previous episodes, you may have heard us talk about different approaches to planning and decision-making for addressing uncertainty and water resources management. Today, we'll cover a significant step forward in that arena. That's right, Alex. So at the end of October, UNESCO and the International Center for Integrated Water Resources Management, or ICWARM, published a guidebook on the Climate Risk-Informed Decision Analysis, or CRIDA approach, to bottom-up planning and decision-making in water management. Today we bring in three of the book's primary authors to discuss this new CRIDA methodology, how it works, and the broader paradigm shift towards risk-based approaches to addressing uncertainty. We're joined by lead author Dr. Guillermo Mendoza of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Institute for Water Resources. We also have Dr. Odd Yunkin, a climate adaptation specialist from Del Taris in the Netherlands. And finally, AGWA's own coordinator, Dr. John Matthews, joins us again on the podcast. So without further ado, let's turn this over to the CRIDA experts. The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. To start out, we'll want to provide our listeners with some background on the CRIDA approach to resilient water management. And again, CRIDA stands for Climate Risk-Informed Decision Analysis. We're first joined by Guillermo Mendoza, the lead author of CRIDA, to give us some context before we dive deeper. I'll start with a basic question. What is CRIDA and what's it all about? So CRIDA is a manual which is part of six years of other tools that are coming out, like the decision tree that came out a few years ago, maybe two years ago. That's the World Bank Decision Tree Framework by Patrick Ray and Casey Brown. And it's a manual to guide an analyst on how to incorporate existing planning processes to account for design and planning of more robust or flexible systems, right? Most engineering guidance in planning and design of water resources has a, an important bias for optimal, efficient solutions. And quite a helps guide the analyst towards adding to that of how do you account for more robust solutions? Do you need more robust solutions? And more flexible, that is, can, can you make a decision today that, that will not hurt a decision tomorrow that you may need to do? And basically, CRIDA is a five-step process, which we can quickly run through. Of course, listeners can get way more details by checking out the full book, but let's just do a quick dive into the process. Step one is all about structuring the decision context. Essentially, you start off with you have to plan towards a problem, right? And that's really important because the problem is not climate change, right? The problem is some sort of failed performance. What is a failed performance in the future? What is a chronic failure that you want to avoid? That's a starting point and having all the data and tools, models you need to address that. And then we have step two, which is about implementing a bottom-up vulnerability assessment. So the second phase is building model to do a stress test. And the stress test essentially helps you determine all the ways the system can fail. You know failure from the stakeholders. So 
can we build the systems model of your water, your, your irrigation system, and iteratively try to find every way that it fails? And they ask you a question. Once you understand all ways is vulnerable, there are two aspects of that analysis. One is, does anything out there, any evidence out there, which could be your, your climate forecast, your trend analysis, your theory of what you know the system, how sensitive is your performance to climate or whatever it may be? What is the evidence out there that you'll enter a failed state in the next 20, 50, 100 years? And the other piece of that also is saying, what is your analytical uncertainty? Step three is where the analyst formulates alternative plans. Using those sources of information in this next step, we guide the analyst with four fundamental choices or paths to go forward in the visibility or pre-feasibility studies. The next step is really about we need to create a culture of creative solution in, in order to examine all possible outcomes. So being creative at finding additional benefits and formulating a broad set of actions. Step four is about comparing those plans and making recommendations. At the end of the day, the idea is you're making a recommendation to the decision maker. You know, decision makers don't like to be told what the answer is, but being able to give decision makers a series of options that work and why and be able to justify them. This next step is really about how do you justify more robustness? How do you justify having a flexible plan? We use techniques such as incremental cost analysis to help decision makers look at what is the next increment of cost I'm going to pay for a certain level of protection or performance. The same thing with adaptive paths as you, as you think about changes in the future, which is your best first step to make? In, in an adaptive plan. Finally, step five is where we institutionalize these decisions, right? Decisions are political. They have a layer of institutions about them. So the last step tries to help the analyst be aware of these because at the end of the day, even from day one, as you start planning a, a project, you need to be aware of the end state. You want the project to be approved. You want your recommended project to be taken into consideration. So it helps tie that all together. Now that we have a pretty good baseline understanding of CRIDA, Ingrid and I wanted to talk to the authors about the underlying concepts behind the approach and more about its application. We've been hearing from Guillermo Mendoza. Now we'll bring in Odd and John for the rest of the conversation. I know CRIDA has been a long work in progress, and, and even though it was just published, parts of the process have, have already been applied in maybe a dozen or so countries already. Hard to believe, but the project has been underway for about eight years. So I wanted to ask, why are you people such slow writers? Or was this just a really complex process? Yeah, I think we are fast but circular writers. So we arrived back at the starting point a few times and uh, have improved over time. This is fellow Cryda author Adyugan. And I also think eight years, at least for me, is the true length it took. I only came involved maybe four, five years ago. That was also around the time that we started to call it Cryda. I think the period before is more part of... Uh, formation of several ideas that led to not only CRIDA, but also to a suite of bottom-up vulnerability assessment approaches. Yeah, so it wasn't just a straight line you were walking down for eight years. It was kind of a, a path with a lot of branches, too. So there was a natural evolution. And there is also a lot of contributions from other people as well, I'm sure. But in terms of the writing, there were three lead writers, and those were an engineer, a climate scientist, and a biologist. <laughs> this sounds like a setup to a bad joke. <laughs> but, uh, so three lead writers, an engineer, a climate scientist, and biologist. Why are these three perspectives necessary to writing about resilient water resources management? I guess the beauty of the triad was typically biologists, climate scientists, and engineers don't get along. You know, climate scientists uh, want us to focus on the forecast, and then biologists want to stop engineering altogether. 
<laughs> so I think now that what that is why it was successful. Right? These are the kind of three key elements that were necessary. I also think that the engineer in this triad represents the old world and also the world of community where uh, CRIDA is written for, the community that takes the decision on water resources management that may have been dominated by engineers over time. And there's this new uh, community of climate scientists. So to bring together these two worlds and integrate actually the, the climate sciences into the engineers' decision-making world, that's uh, I think one, one of the major steps that were needed. And of course, biologists already try for centuries to get their takes represented in engineering designs. I think that aspect has been well taken up in Crida as looking at multiple objectives in decision-making for water resources. And of course, ecosystems are a very important objective in water resources management in that respect. And yeah. also, I'll argue that John's contribution was less of a biologist contribution and more of a teaching us about um, you know, evidence-based well, let's dive into that just a little deeper. When you say that the role of the biologist was to bring in this evidence-based approach, what am I missing here? Was it less obvious than it sounds, making Crida center around existing evidence? What Guillermo is uh, referring to is uh, an idea that I uh, learned about from, from my wife, actually. This is Crida author John Matthews. My wife is a physician, and one of the, the great changes in medicine over the past 20, 25 years has been something called evidence-based medicine. And, and literally, most physicians now, they, they work through a decision tree. It maybe seems strange that they weren't doing that before, but they made a big shift. And what they tried to do is over the years kind of gather the balance of studies. There's a huge biomedical research literature that's been assembled that's still ongoing. And so these decision trees are constantly being updated and developed. And that was, in a way, the kind of first idea for CRIDA in our very earliest meetings. What is the, the best evidence? But I think we made a transition to saying, what is it that we know about resilience itself? How do we construct resilience? How do we define it? Just real quickly, sorry to interrupt. How do you all define resilience in the context of CRIDA? It's turned into such a loaded term with a ton of underlying facets to it. It can take on a different meaning depending on who you ask. One of the, the, the big insights that we really borrowed from our partners and colleagues at the World Bank, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Casey Brown and Patrick Gray, and others is this idea of robustness, uh, that we need to be comprehensive across a, a range of possible futures. And then uh, I remember very clearly having a conversation with Guillermo and another of our co-authors, uh, Kristen Gilroy, and Guillermo said, you know, there's all this residual uncertainty. We need to really think about flexibility. And there's this team that's been working in the Netherlands for several years uh, on how to do flexibility as a systematic outcome when robustness isn't sufficient. And that, in effect, became the kind of second half of CRIDA in our working definition of resilience. And that's when I became involved. Now, before we get too far along, we should start with an understanding of some of the underlying concepts. We'll describe CRIDA as a quote-unquote bottom-up approach to risk assessment and resilient decision-making. Can you describe the idea behind bottom-up approaches? And if top-down approaches conversely rely heavily on climate models, does that mean that in CRIDA we just throw climate models and data out the window? How does the process work? No, we don't throw them out of the window, but they are definitely not our starting point. But the starting point is what are the, the things that could break the system or that would force the decision-maker to take another decision. So really, we start with the water management issue at hand and ask the question, what could happen that, that would force us to, to take another direction or a 
as Guillermo is always saying and asking the people what's keeping you awake at night, where you're afraid of, that will make your world change. And then we explore how much the climate should change to reach that point. And that's what we call the stress test. And once we know how the vulnerability of the system responds to these changes and, and where the breaking points are, then we bring in a climate science and climate model projection and scenarios to see how plausible this is that this will happen in 2030 or 2050 or, or even further away. That's the way we operate within CRIDA, but also a, another bottom-up methodology like uh, decision scaling and the decision tree framework of the World Bank. They apply the same principles. I wanted to talk a little bit about the audience of CRIDA. So I've heard that at many of the workshops that you all have been doing as, as you go out and, and work with people and teaching them about CRIDA, that you state that your audience in CRIDA you are writing for an engineering-oriented technical person in the developing world who has limited computational and institutional resources and access to data. Why did you pick this audience, and why would this person be different from someone working in a place like France or Australia or the U.S.? Because I wonder if this CRIDA approach works also in very developed countries as well. You know, at the end of the day, decision makers make decisions from the gut, I mean, not only in the developing world, but in the developed world. So when I find people successfully embracing it, it's because of that. I don't think I've ever met a decision maker that will make a decision based on a model that tells them what the answer is. So CRIDA allows people to look at risk, look at uncertainty, and systematically guide them through decisions, through you know, getting from a promise statement all the way to recommending solutions. I don't think limited to the developing world. It is very useful for the developing world because in the developing world, data is often lacking, but that should not be a bottleneck. In CRIDA, we treat the lack of data as Okay, there's just more uncertainty. No, I, I agree. It, I think the most important part of the audience is, is that it's not targeting the decision maker itself directly, but it's targeting a technical person, a technical analyst that's supporting decision makers and that's involving stakeholders. It's too complicated to build, for instance, a decision support system to have non-technical people execute adaptation assessment themselves. So the technical persons really are key in this process. And that's why we wrote the CRIDA guidelines for this person called the analyst. That's a great point, Odd. And you know, I think that a lot of the work that's been done around climate change and adaptation generally, but uh, also in regard to water management is that it's it's aimed at two different levels. It's aimed at, at the kind of ultimate decision maker, the person that often is writing the checks for a project, or it's maybe more directed as a kind of advocacy issue that here are all the reasons you should be doing it. But in between, there's often a very technically trained person who is shepherding a, a project or a planning process all the way from start to finish. And that technical person is probably very, very well trained, very competent in their work, but we're only just starting to see now that they're looking at, at how to operationalize climate adaptation and, and that the technical analyst really needs to kind of capture the state of the art, the state of knowledge, what we think of as the collected best practices for resilient water management. And so that was why we, we picked the analyst as our target. And, and one of the reasons why we articulated the audience, especially in the developed world, is that we knew that that was the hardest part of the audience to be able to reach. So that was the person with the access to the fewest resources. So if we could reach that person, then we knew that we would be able to reach a lot of other people too. I'll add to that too. I think it's in the developing world that most of the 
major infrastructure will be built over the next 30 years. It is these countries that are the most vulnerable to sea level rise, drought, floods. Guillermo, you kind of touched on this. I know engineers in particular really, really dislike the idea of uncertainty. Engineers are always trying to, to really mitigate uncertainty, but that's been a prominent theme in thinking about climate risk. And it features prominently in the title, but also in in this conversation. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if we could dig a little bit deeper on that and, and why is addressing uncertainty so important? And climate uncertainty, is it the biggest issue that a decision maker is worried about? Are there other things also considering? Uncertainty has been dealt with always. And the way that engineers have dealt with it is creating safety margins. Let's make this, you know, a few percent higher. Let's make this a few percent deeper. It's just a random number that has worked through trial and error. What if that is is no longer suitable? You know, we start looking at the point of breakage, you know, when the system starts failing due to climate change and population growth, right? So the things that make things fail are are, going to be a combination of factors that are confronting design. It's not one single thing. So uncertainty is, is important, definitely not climate uncertainty alone. But the reason that we wrote Friday is that this uncertainty aspect hasn't been dealt with in a very good way in, in, in other methods like integrated water resources management that has been around for a long time already. I'm going to jump in too. This is John. And one of the things that also was a kind of early insight is as technical people, uh, we often were really interested and reasonably comfortable with the idea of uncertainty. But but most decision makers, and maybe even more importantly, the stakeholders who may have an indirect uh, role in in the decision-making process, but they have uh, often uh, a really critical role in political processes or in really having to live with and implement a project or or a planning process, they're they're not comfortable with uncertainty. It's it's, odd. Guillermo was saying that they're often overwhelmed by it, or they may feel like they just need to continue with their existing decision. So we we flipped it around. We said the opposite of uncertainty is confidence. So let's start by building confidence. Let's say uh, that we need to, to start with the things that we know and that we feel comfortable with. So Guillermo was using the term breaking point. When does our system stop working? When do stakeholders say conditions become unacceptable? When does a resource manager say that this ecosystem stops functioning? So that's a very different orientation in how you define a problem and then begin to develop solutions, moving from more confidence to less confidence. And if you find that that uncertainty and lack of confidence are a really profound issue, then you probably need to make a very different kind of decision than you would in other cases. And that, I would say, is one of the really big shifts that CRIDA and other bottom-up approaches more generally mark with how we think about natural resource management, about infrastructure design and and long-term planning processes. You know, something odd that you and John have been talking about here is the way that this system really kind of empowers people who potentially don't have a lot of good climate models or, or data at their local level and may feel kind of paralyzed in terms of making a decision because there is so much uncertainty that CRIDA then empowers them to be able to actually make informed decisions. And so I know that Credo was just launched this last week, but really, I mean, you guys have already been working and training people on this for quite some time. So I'm curious about how potential users or, or users who are already uh, using the Credo framework, how has it been received? That's a, a great question. But I, I want to link this question to the bottom-up approaches 
question that you asked a couple of minutes ago. I think that there's a broader change that's been happening in decision-making, and there's a, a widespread discomfort in many countries with essentially having uh, decisions, problems uh, defined only at a high level. And there's a recognition that we need to involve a, a much broader group of stakeholders in that process. A few weeks ago, Ott and I were in Nepal at a workshop with National Adaptation Focal Points. And it was really striking to me, listening to the 40-odd countries that were represented, how many of the people kept talking about bottom-up approaches. And their main interest was for climate adaptation, we're talking about often very difficult choices that these countries have to make. And if we don't bring everybody along, then we're not going to come up with a very satisfying solution. All decision-making processes don't function very well in conditions of very high climate, political, socioeconomic, and ecological uncertainty. So I think in, in one answer to your question is that the CRIDA helps specifically that technical analyst engage in a larger governance dialogue around these issues. And that is a very marked change. And most technical people are trained as engineers or economists, maybe finance, but they, they, they're not trained in, in how to connect their language with the language of governance and stakeholder engagement to develop a really shared and common vision. And it's interesting to me that there was a clear consensus when we were working on CRIDA that that was where this, this work had to start. The reason I think CRIDA has potential for success is because it doesn't really change fundamentally the way decision makers need to think or analysts need to work. The approach has always been, let's solve the problem. And the problem has always been around performance. I am not getting enough water for my crop. My crop production is low. That has always been the engineering approach. The top-down approach has been, the problem is climate change. The mainstream climate adaptation approaches were not conducive to decision-making. It's forcing a different type of problem set, which decision-makers have a hard time grasping. All we've done is say, let's go back to basics. The problem is performance. What keeps you awake at night? What is failure? At the end of the day, all we do in CRIDA is say, this is the basic level of investment that will solve the problem. How much are you willing to pay for some kind of robustness or some kind of flexibility, right? There are really two big decisions you made. Do you need to build something differently? And how much differently do you need to do it? Or do you need to think about making sure future options are not compromised? And it's very easy for decision makers to digest. Also, part of the question was if we expect a big group of people to follow this approach. And I think that's still a question of time. And I also think that it's still the people that are used to top-down approaches are far in the majority worldwide. And I, I think it's also not a matter of replacing top-down approaches by bottom-up approaches, but it's also um, a matter of joining approaches and take the best of both worlds. Because in the end, still, the only possibility to get some information on future climate are these PCMs and the regional climate models as well. So I think we need each other. So we need to find a good hybrid approach. And I think Prida in some way already offers frameworks to be a good hybrid approach. That's a perfect segue, Odd. As you're thinking about Crida, you're thinking, let's develop the new best practices. This is a constantly evolving field, climate adaptation. And so we need to look around and see what the state of the art is and see what works and maybe what doesn't work and kind of synthesize that to come up with these new methodologies. So what are the forebears and the inspirations that led to CRIDA? You know, some of the underlying principles, they're not all brand new, right? There's a branch of woodworking that's called joinery. 
joinery is not a, a word that's really used in the 20th century. It's more of an 18th and 19th century word. It's a specialized type of carpenter that just works on fitting different pieces of wood together, maybe smoothing their edges so they line up uh, seamlessly or are making joints where they, they can connect. And I think, you know, one of the interesting insights with Krita as a process is that we realized that there were a lot of very good ideas that were already existing, but they needed, they needed to be joined. They needed to be connected into a continuous process. And we've already alluded to all of those elements. Part is the idea that a technical analyst needs to work with a group of stakeholders and a decision maker to understand the decision context, to be able to understand what success and failure look like, the performance limits and so on from a stakeholder's perspective. Then we need to think about being able to understand where those performance limits might have a climate change component. They need to be translated. And then think about this kind of stress testing process that uh, Ott was talking about and understanding that the limits of performance, understanding how the system works and when it doesn't work. That's the process of decision scaling and that's how you develop a robust solution. But especially if you're working with quantitative issues, uh, you need a, a, a quantitative solution economically or in terms of being able to meet a quantitative performance, say with flood control or resource management, or there's a very high risk of uh, negative consequences from a failure, then all the uncertainty is associated with climate change becomes really important. And we need to think about the aspects of flexibility. And that's where adaptation pathways, adaptation tipping points, those help you develop a range of options to guide your decisions into the future to navigate that landscape of uncertainty. And then lastly, we also try to think about how you evaluate, how you communicate and translate these issues into the language of economics and finance. And uh, I'd say that, that that is where some of the newest thinking has been. Uh, in some ways, it may still be a little incomplete because I'm not sure that anybody has really clear answers in that, that area. But are there economic evaluation approaches that uh, we're designed for a stable climate and for short-term benefits. And we can uh, make some adjustments uh, to these existing methods to help us be able to favor uh, in a cost-benefit analysis, maybe longer-term benefits or a more flexible approach to addressing the problems of community or resource manager or our national government. So that, that joinery process, just like with a, with a carpenter, many of the details that were most difficult for us were in the connections between these segments. We knew a lot about what to do when we were in each, in effect, in each chapter, but it was how to line them all up because they had never been lined up before. Make sure that they were interoperable, that an idea from one really carried over into the language and concepts and ideas of the next. Well, I'm so glad, John, that you were able to bring 19th century carpentry into this discussion. <laughs> Uh, always amazing. <laughs> I was thinking about a quilting bee too, but that, that just seemed to, kind of wrong. It's too obvious, yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of running short on time, but I was thinking just to round it out, looking forward, you talked about this concept, John, of joinery, and Odd had mentioned earlier this idea of connecting, you know, these bottom-up approaches to more top-down approaches. And so what I'm hearing kind of in this conversation is a lot of 
Crida providing, or these these other tools as well, providing this connective tissue, both between the decision makers and technical people, and also in looking at local level approaches and connecting those to national level and then to these global processes as well. So I'm wondering what do you all see as the biggest potential for Crida in the kind of medium term or long term? John was mentioning uh, the link to climate finance. I, I think that would potentially mm. be a good area. And that for um, good support to questions about additionality of climate finance to development finance. So there I see some potential. I, I think in general, any water resources management planning efforts can benefit from CRIDA on basin level, maybe also on national level. I want to go back to um, Ingrid's start of a joke that uh, an engineer and a climate scientist and a biologist uh, walked into a room, and I, I would actually say that they probably, in this case, walked into a bar. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to maybe a more philosophical level. I think that right now that our whole definition of what climate resilience looks like is an area of very active uh, debate and dialogue uh, all around the world right now, and we have kind of strong competing definitions that are in many cases not even reconcilable with, with each other about how it is that we understand what resilience should look like. And I would like to think that the synthesis of these three perspectives actually is also a synthesis of resilience in, in a really broad perspective. In terms of water, you know, the language of water is really the language of engineering and it has been for centuries. And that's not going to change. So we have to start with the terms of, of reference, the framework that engineering provides and will continue to provide. Climate science is actually a relatively new science, and it's evolving very rapidly. And a lot of what it tells us is how to think about climate systems, to think about the climate as plastic and rapidly evolving, and how we might understand the directions of that evolution. So that's very powerful. Uh, and also this, these insights around uncertainty from climate science are really critical. In biology, we're often, with regard to water, we're talking about eco-hydrological systems. So we may be looking at a hydropower dam or an agriculture irrigation project or a stormwater system or a well. But these are part of a larger eco-hydrological system. And we need to think in terms of basins, and flow and the ecosystems that are deeply integrated with that, that eco-hydrological context. So I think what we're doing maybe at this philosophical level is offering an example, hopefully a persuasive model too, about what resilience looks like in this kind of integrated perspective for very long-term water management, how maybe we can shift from simply using the past as a predictor for the future to saying, let's take an evolving vision of what a healthy, integrated national community ecosystem a vision of resilience should look like in water management. Maybe we'll close with this. What's a quick selling point on what makes CRIDA unique and why people should go check out the new book? So I think one of the things about CRIDA, that's really what makes it perhaps a little different than other similar manuals, is that it is based about starting from a problem set, coming up with at least one or two alternatives other than the do-nothing alternative, which may be, the, that might be the best solution is do nothing, right? And guiding the process, helping analysts, help the decision maker understand implications and how to move forward towards how to justify and recommend a project or a series of projects. I think that's a good message to wrap up with. We really appreciate you all taking the time to join us on the show. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Yes, okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye.
Take it easy. Bye bye. Well, I think it was pretty fun and different having a couple extra guests join us for this interview. Credit has been a work in progress for several years, and I know a lot of organizations have been involved in the writing and piloting process. So it's only fair that we have a few of the authors on here to hear each of their perspectives in how this has formed over the last several years. I think they said it best. They represented the engineering, climate science, and ecological communities. If nothing else, Cryda is a way to take a new view of resilience that incorporates all of these perspectives in coming up with water management projects that are both robust and flexible in the face of uncertainty. And the guidance in Cryda is part of a broader paradigm shift in the adaptation community towards working with stakeholders who understand failure, using whatever data is available to assess those risks and then institutionalizing adaptive management practices. And even for myself, speaking, I guess, as more of a policy-oriented person, I also find great value in CRIDA because it helps me reorient my thinking about approaches to planning. Traditional policymaking is also heavily reliant on data. So how do we develop sound policy instruments given an uncertain future and perhaps a lack of sound, reliable data? So we've only really touched on a small number of the issues involved or, or applications that could be made. So for anyone who wants to learn more, we highly recommend checking out the CRIDA publication and website that will be linked in this episode's description. From there, you can find a number of other resources to help guide you through CRIDA and its many possible applications. We'll leave you with that bit of homework. Thanks for sticking through for a slightly longer episode. Thanks again to our earlier guests, Drs. Guillermo Mendoza, Odd Yukin, and John Matthews. Until next time, everyone. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.